podcast. I'm your only host this week, Dr. Emma Dilemma. Our other host, Dr. Emily Gremlin, is yet again off on an island teaching ecology to America's youth. Therefore, uh, this and the next episode will be mini episodes where I tell a shorter story about someone awesome. So the next two episodes will be short stories with just me and then we'll be back to our normal episodes. Let's see. With that, I also want to give many thanks to Dr. Winnie Warren, who authored the book Black Women Scientists in the United States. This book, which was published in 1999, tells the stories of over 100 Black American women scientists, and it was instrumental to me in writing today's story, and I've used it so many times before. I'm sure Emlyn has, too. Um, it's been such a great book for discovering and researching many of the women we've talked about on this podcast. So, you know, we always cite our sources in the episode bio, but I wanted to formally thank and acknowledge Winnie Warren for her amazing book that fills such a huge void in information about Black women scientists. And, uh, you know, I rec- highly recommend it if you're a teacher or anyone looking for amazing role models for your students or kids or whoever else, or just for yourself. So with that, let's get started with today's story. So in the spirit of teaching and great science educators like my co-host, Dr. Emily Gremlin, this week I chose to tell everyone about the amazing Dr. Geraldine Pittman Woods a neuroembryologist that was instrumental in pioneering and expanding biomedical research opportunities for minorities throughout the 70s and 80s. Geraldine Pittman was born in West Palm Beach, Florida, to two parents, Oscar and Susie, who worked in multiple different careers, including restaurants, farming, lumber, and real estate. They were adamant that their daughter obtained the best education she could, an education that they could not have, And so her parents worked extremely hard throughout Geraldine's childhood to ensure they could pay for her schooling. Even after her father died when Geraldine was in high school, Geraldine's mother took over the businesses and ran them super successfully, eventually paying for all of Geraldine's higher education. Geraldine attended segregated high schools throughout her childhood and became interested in science at an early age. After graduating high school, she enrolled in Talladega College in Alabama, but soon transferred to Howard University to be closer to her mother, who had fallen ill, and was being treated at Johns Hopkins University. It was at Howard that Geraldine became specifically interested in biology, and she joined the Delta Sigma Theta sorority, which had been founded at Howard 30 years previous. Noticing her enthusiasm for biology, one of her professors, Louis Hansborough, encouraged her to study embryology. For our avid listeners, Louis had been a student of, guess who? Roger Arliner Young and her infamous boss, Ernest Just, which is just a little callback to a former episode on the amazing embryologist, Roger Young. 
So Lewis gave Geraldine books on embryology so that they could read and discuss them together and encouraged her to attend graduate school at his alma mater, Harvard. So when Geraldine graduated in 1942, she moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts to attend Radcliffe College, which is or was the women's college at Harvard University. Though technically in a separate college from Harvard, most of her courses were offered through Harvard. Of course, at that time, the schools were separated by sex, even though the degrees were the same. Just insane, as usual. Her mother paid for all of her schooling, which was pretty unique for that time, and Geraldine says that her mother was an excellent businesswoman, despite her lack of formal education, and was always just a strong support in her life for obtaining more and more education. There was only one other black woman in Geraldine's doctoral program. Her name was Mary Logan Reddick, and she also studied neuroembryology. And because of their shared interests in this research topic, they would often study together and work together in lab, which was really cool. And hopefully one day we'll talk about Mary Reddick as well. So upon entering Radcliffe, Geraldine realized she did not have the same educational experiences as a lot of the white students in her classes. This she attributes to attending segregated schools. Schools at that time for black students often lacked funding for hands-on learning, specifically for things like scientific equipment, which were often more available at schools for white students. She says, quote, I wasn't as familiar with as much of the scientific equipment as I should have been at first, so I had to work harder, but after becoming adjusted, I worked about as hard as the other students did. And this was certainly an eye-opening experience for Geraldine, and this experience and others would eventually fuel her later desire and efforts to provide hands-on educational op opportunities to minority students. For her graduate degrees, Geraldine was advised by Lee Hoadley, an embryologist. She received her Master's of Science in 1943 and then her PhD in Neuroembryology in 1945. Her dissertation was titled, quote, The Development of the Spinal Cord of the Chick Embryo in Chorioallantoic Graphs. <laughs> Words. One word I've never heard of before. But specifically... What this means, um, she researched whether the process of cell specialization, so cells start off all kind of contain, containing similar components and then over time become specialized to become, say, a nerve cell or a skin cell or an eyeball cell, etc. She researched whether the process of cell specialization was dictated by hereditary factors or by stimulation from other cells nearby, um, ultimately finding that both things contributed to specialization of cells and the chick embryos that she was studying. After graduating, she moved back to Maryland and began teaching biology at Howard. She also married a man named Robert Woods, a dental student she had met while at Harvard and had dated for some time, but who had been fighting in World War II throughout a good portion of her graduate career. I think they met at Harvard. I'm not quite sure when they met, actually. After he returned from the war, they married, he finished his studies, and they moved to Los Angeles where he would set up his dental practice. At this point, Geraldine quit researching and teaching and kind of became a full-time stay-at-home mom. 
However, she stayed incredibly active in multiple philanthropic roles that would eventually lead her back to science and education, albeit from a new perspective as she would never return to scientific research specifically. For example, while her kids were growing up, she stayed involved in programs associated with her sorority, Delta Sigma Theta, such that she eventually became the national president of the sorority from 1963 to 1967. As the president of her sorority, she directed numerous projects in child development, mentoring, and community service, which would eventually gain her recognition by the president and first lady of the United States, which I'll get to in a second. In 1963, Geraldine also began volunteering as a member of the personnel board of the California Department of Employment. I'm not sure exactly what she did in this role, but I believe it helped her to connect to the federal government. Uh, That's because the next year, Herbert Humphrey, who was the vice president of the United States at that time, suggested to the Surgeon General that they appoint Geraldine to the National Advisory Council of the National Institute of Generic... Oh, sorry. So many words. Okay. The National Advisory Council of the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, which is an institute connected to the National Institute of Health or the NIH. Hopefully that's the last time I have to say all of those things together. During her time on this council, she became involved in efforts to improve scientific training at historically black colleges. She specifically found that despite the scientific boom of that time, right after World War II, that historically black colleges were generally not applying for or receiving as many scientific grants or educational grants as other colleges. And this became kind of a passion of hers that, um, and she wanted to change this, obviously, and she would. But first, around that same time in 1965, Lady Bird Johnson, the then First Lady of the United States, invited Geraldine to participate in the launch of Head Start, a program initiated during the Johnson administration that aimed to end poverty by providing social, emotional, educational, nutritional, psychological, and other health services to children of low-income families, especially pre-K children. So in her role as president of Delta Sigma Theta, Geraldine was able to get many of her chapters, sorority chapters, involved in the Head Start program, and she was specifically engaged in starting the program in Los Angeles, where her sorority now runs, I think, 14 or 15 Head Start centers, or at least by 2000. It might be even more than that now. One of which was named after her, the Dr. Geraldine P. Woods Head Start Preschool Center in Los Angeles. In 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson appointed Woods as the chairman of the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. And in 1969, she was appointed as the first black female special consultant. Oh, I do have to say it again. (laughs) Great. The first black female special consultant to the National Institute of General Medical Sciences. Okay, I got it this time. Great. In this role, she researched the barriers facing black scientists when it came to obtaining research grants. For some time, she collected and kept records of black professors applying for research grants and fellowships and found that most grants were rejected specifically because the schools did not have proper equipment to carry out the research proposed in the grants. Which honestly, when I read that, I thought that was freaking insane. 
That's why they need research funding <laughs> to get the equipment. Okay. Um, but also, the grants were often rejected because many black researchers applying for grants at that time did not have doctoral degrees, which were, of course, difficult to obtain for numerous reasons, including lack of access to scholarships and funding for higher education, and also because historically black institutions at that time placed heavy teaching loads on researchers, such that it was much more difficult to have time to complete the necessary amount of research to obtain a doctoral degree or to do the background research necessary for proposing a grant. In addition, Geraldine found that many of her white colleagues at the NIH kind of sat around and questioned how do we get more funding for black biomedical researchers, but they didn't take an active part in finding that funding or even in engaging those researchers in the conversation. She felt she was in a place to engage everyone, both at the universities and at the federal agencies. Thus, Geraldine initiated two new programs, called one called the Minority Access to Research Centers Program and the other called the Minority Biomedical Research Support Program, both at NIH. These programs would provide funding for tuition, supplies, equipment, training, salaries for early career researchers, and fellowships for faculty. In the early stages, she not only had to convince Congress that these programs were worthwhile and would be effective, but she had to convince historically black institutions to take advantage of the programs, as many researchers and educators at these institutions had become rightfully disillusioned in the U.S. government after years of neglect. However, these programs quickly took off and expanded. For the first time, significant funding was available to black biomedical researchers. And realizing how successful these programs were, the government expanded them to such that they could benefit all colleges with significant minority populations. The two programs highly emphasize undergraduate research participation, including support for students to attend and present at scientific meetings and publish in journals. These programs resulted in almost double the number of minority students receiving degrees in the biomedical sciences and the number of publications by minority scientists in biomedical sciences increased almost fivefold from 1973 to 1980. And when the program started in 1971, it supported 38 institutions. By 1981, it had expanded to almost 80, including colleges on Native American reservations. After this, Geraldine received numerous high-up board chair position board or chair positions at the NIH, at Howard, at other universities, often helping to connect college administrators, researchers, and federal institutions. She was a member of many scientific and philanthropic societies throughout her life and active in her sorority throughout her entire life. Later in life, she would reject the idea that she was a true scientist, instead referring to herself as, quote, a facilitator, a science-trained academic who has worked to make science available for others by developing programs to provide better access for those who historically have been bypassed, which in totality makes her a critical asset to science and an amazing woman to boot, and the reason why I wanted to tell everyone about her today. 
And so that's the end of my story. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope um, y'all can stay warm and safe this week, and I hope this brings you just a little fun. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and share the podcast with friends. And as usual, go stimulate yourself. Okay, bye. Bye, circa 1820.